and they had all these graphs and such to demonstrate that when you use these long-acting formulas, that they were less addictive. That when people were spared the seesaw euphoria of taking an opiate, almost like magic, the whole addictive character of the drug was no longer an issue. I'm Greg Rennie. And I'm Rob Reeford. And this is Mind Body Matters. Welcome to our podcast. And this podcast, as everyone knows, we talk about all matters of the mind and body and the mind body connection. And we talk a lot about Rob Reefert and his personal life. No, I'm just kidding. We don't do that. <laughs> Is there anything wrong with no, that? No, no. I wouldn't bring up anything about you. Right. What a show today. Yeah. Perfect timing. This week, Netflix has a show about Big Pharma, Purdue Pharma, and the Sackler family at the same time that we're going to be interviewing uh, Dr. Robert Shepard about the same thing. And this show, it's uh, it's on Netflix. It's called, is it Painkiller? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's called Painkiller. And it's based on a book that I read. I read lots of these books about Purdue Pharma. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I think it reflects, you know, the marketing techniques that pharmaceutical uh, companies have. But uh, I was really kind of surprised working in healthcare what these guys did back then. On the Netflix website, it says that it's fictionalized, but it's based on a book by Barry Meyer called Painkiller. Oh, okay. It was very revealing for me uh, to read that. So I've got tons of questions for for Dr. Shepard about this. Well, well, you, well, you turned into a little bit of an investigative reporter on this oh one. Oh, my God, yeah. I really went... <laughs> like, you did a lot of research on this. So like, my kudos and congratulations because, uh, you know, uh, Greg, you turn on the TV these days... And you'd be hard-pressed not to go through a TV show without seeing a pharmaceutical commercial. Excellent point. All marketing. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I could list off a, a ton of different drugs, but um, it seems like every commercial cluster on TV, there's always a pharmaceutical commercial. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And it's, um, I always thought, well, okay, you know, they got to do their marketing. But uh, in this book, and a lot of the questions are going to be asking, uh, Dr. Shepard is, is, you know, the kind of nefarious ways that they pushed uh, medication. Now, the Netflix series is primarily about OxyContin, which is a drug that's manufactured by a company called Purdue Pharma, as I mentioned. Uh, but also, um, there's other other uh, pharmaceutical companies that are uh, are doing the same thing. So I'd like to know from his experience. This is all kind of based on a conversation that uh, Robert and I had. I've known him for many years. It was a casual conversation at first, and he was talking about his experience as a psychologist uh, years ago and his wife, who's a doctor, that they were often wined and dined and brought to these educational conferences. Quote, unquote, educational conferences. Air quotes, educational conferences were uh, basically, you know, it was you know, five-star hotels that that were paid for for the doctors to go there and great food. And then after the fact, you'd have this beautiful drug rep that will show up in a, you know, in a, in a fancy car and, you know, give you all these perks and gifts and stuff like that, like mentioned in, in the book. He was there at the time. So I really want to um, ask him about the research that I did. And I, I got to tell you, I really went into the rabbit hole on this one. It, it, I just got so fascinated with this. Thing. I know you did. <laughs> <laughs> 
because I called you oh, when I was I doing the research. You know, you, I said, oh, my you, God, you, Rob. You're not going to believe what I just found out. <laughs> my goodness. We're talking to this guy next week, and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you were, a little, well, you were a little excited. But you know what? Uh, this is a real episode, and uh, I, I can't wait uh, to hear what the doctor has to say. Let's just go right to the interview. Here's Dr. Robert Shepard. I went into rabbit hole, I think I told you in the email, mm-hmm. because I read these books before about Purdue. I got into reading everything I could find about, about Pfizer and Celebrex, and I got into what kind of um, inhibitor uh, Celebrex is and <laughs> yeah. COX-2 yeah. versus COX-1. And, right. Uh, but I enjoyed it. Like it's, um, it's really fascinating, you know. It and, is. Uh, it is. And as I've said before to you, this stuff is, it's, it's, I mean, it's not just limited to pharmaceuticals, it's, it's business really. But, yeah. um, but because I've been immersed in medicine for my whole life, like w- alongside a doctor, um, it's just, it's, I've lived it. I actually have experienced all this stuff. I was, I've been at these dinners, you know, and on these events yeah. and at these hotels and, and getting these free samples and kits and stuff, swag and all that and feeling uneasy about it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's kind of neat to be able to, to look back and say, man, I participated in this really cool history. However, nefarious and evil <laughs> it sounds, it, yeah. it just, it just unfolded around everybody. I yeah. just feel glad that I was able to early on become uncomfortable with it and be like, uh, you know, cause I, I did literally have to talk Carolyn out of attending these things. And it took a while because was just so attractive how we were getting five-star hotels and stuff it was it's it was really enticing you know it's very hard to say no to well that was a question i'm going to ask later on is that um i'm sure yourself other physicians they they knew this right they knew about the perks and the incentives but then for some you know they were kind of you know tapped to do certain talks and stuff like that but do you prefer dr shepherd or robert uh, I really, Robert, <laughs> please. <laughs> Good. Cause I figured that, you know, I've yeah. known you for a number of years. I assume that yeah. calling you Robert's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I, I more comfortable actually. Yeah. About five or six years ago in one of our great discussions about healthcare, you shared your experiences about big pharmaceutical companies and it really stuck in my head. Since then, I've read a number of books mm-hmm. uh, about Purdue Pharma the Sackler family and Oxycontin. And as I read them, I thought about this conversation we had a couple of years ago and I was thrilled that we're going to be meeting today and I'm able to ask these questions I've been thinking about. So as we chatted a few days ago, we're going to talk about all pharmaceutical companies and your experience as a psychologist, obviously. But first, you know, our show is focused on the mind-body connection. What does the mind-body connection mean to you? Wow. Isn't that a question? Well, you know, it means it means a lot of things and, and different things depending on when you would have asked me that during my career. More and more of late, it has to do with I would I would call it even brain body connection, because I've been just learning so much about the neuroscience behind uh how the mind works and how it's connected to everything else in our body, uh, how, how, how everything meshes together. And it's really helped me to overcome uh, something I've always had issue with, which was the medical model, the, the kind of distinction that, that things were always based in this disease model that 
that if you had a problem, it always reflects some kind of underlying disease. Whereas when you start looking, and in particular for mental health, I just, it rankled me to always having things reduced to being this kind of diagnosis or that. Not not that they're not useful and helpful to be able to separate different problems, but but the underlying assumption was, this is sick. You know, this is an illness. And as I've come to understand how the mind actually works and looked at the research that's really coming out, exciting research that supports that, that supports the idea that it's it's an, an integrated network and that we can't really separate the body from the mind. And that a lot of the things that we take for granted in our day-to-day are actually fascinating, extremely sophisticated coping mechanisms, at adaptational responses that help us survive. We don't even know we're doing it most of the time. And it just, for me, that's important because my clients are coming in with problems and they're assuming that there's something really wrong. Well, yeah, there are problems. But more importantly, there's more, there are imbalances. And when I can help them to see what's going on and, and use my understanding of the mind in combination with their understanding of what they're experiencing, it just can open doors to alternative ways to looking at a problem, to looking at the solution. So and that's really important, just looking at alternative ways to solve human problems. I'm in agreement of all of that. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, a big reason why we uh, decided to have the focus of mind-body as uh, the podcast, because I think that it reflects on so many different things. And no matter what the topic is, uh, like today we're talking more or less about big pharma, you mm-hmm. know, but because you're a psychologist, you know, it makes a lot of sense to bring that question up and I ask everyone at the very beginning, the same question. In 2003, you were working at a family health team at that point? I wasn't actually. That was in my private practice days. Oh, okay. So at that time you were still in private practice. Yeah. And, uh, and the reason I, uh, yeah, uh, you know, you're getting to this conversation we had about the, uh, the educational event that, uh, that you went yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah, and that sprung up because I was at a conference and uh, with my wife, and it was a medical conference, not surprisingly, where we were being wined and dined. And uh, I was sitting, believe it or not, in a hot tub. <laughs> no the, kidding. And there was a drug rep across from me in the hot tub, as well as my wife and a couple other doctors. And and she had heard, uh, seen me attending this talk and found out I had overheard that I was a psychologist. And one thing led to another, and she learned that I had a lot of pain patients in my in my work. And uh, she asked whether I'd be ever interested in giving a talk at some, one of their seminars that they sponsor, and that I could be paid to do that. Which I thought was, wow, that was that was pretty interesting. So uh, one thing led to another, and I I was getting a call from the local pharmaceutical detail man or or drug rep, as we call them, and. Am I right that it was in that conference or educational event that you heard a pain specialist talk about painkillers? Was was the discussion on Oxycontin at that event in Purdue, or was that something different that she was talking about? It was it was really interesting and, and pretty pretty eye opening to me because um, while my wife was a physician, there were some changes happening. It was becoming evident even at that time that that the opiates were were starting to be prescribed more freely. And uh, 
I was sitting down and I was the second one to talk. The first speaker was this pain specialist that they brought in from the big city, so to speak. And we're, we're sitting at a very swanky restaurant in a very swanky little hotel. Um, every, the doctors are all just really loving it. And uh, this fellow started to talk about how the newer, what, what were called the newer pain medications were long acting and they had these long acting formulas and they had all these graphs and such to demonstrate that when you use these long acting formulas, that they were less addictive, that when people were spared the seesaw, um, euphoria, peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys of taking an opiate, almost like magic, the the whole addictive character of the drug was no longer an issue. And this meant, according to the speaker, and, and I was quite surprised to hear, so I hadn't heard this before, that many uh, problems, even milder pain conditions, could be treated with these drugs, whereas opiates wouldn't be considered. That opiates were no longer just intended for late-stage cancer care that doctors could look forward to them to being useful and, and helpful in all kinds of new domains. And the specialist went into explaining all these different areas that you could start prescribing these drugs in. Uh, we, I, my eyes were open, <laughs> particularly as my talk was kind of on the opposite, which was on how we needed to avoid these medications because ah, they were... Okay, so it was in conflict with what he was saying. I, I was really... I had to do some revisions on the fly before I stood up in front of everyone. I had my PowerPoint slides all all ready to go, so I had to go through with it. But I, I tried to soften the blow in terms of my message, which was generally that a lot of pain conditions have a very strong psychological component. And by that, I mean that there's what we call sensitivity uh, developing in the brain, that it's a very physical event that the brain becomes sensitized to pain. It's like a feedback loop. And that to truly treat the pain, we have to address that sensitivity, that brain change. And that opiate medications don't do that. And that if we give them, we're only going to be courting disaster. Well, it it didn't go over very well. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Imagine not. Uh, The uh, pain specialist in particular was looking pretty sour when I finished. And, uh, and uh, as I explained to you in our conversation before, I never heard from the truck rep again, was never asked to do any more talks. You were taken off the list. I was taken off the list. That's right. So the opiates that he was talking about, was he referring to meds like uh, Oxycontin? He was referring to the newer versions of them at the time, which were the long-acting formulas. And there were a number of different medications uh, as you as you can guess, there's quite a few variations on opiates in the market. Um, but uh, the primary issue at, at that point was the switch from using short-acting to long-acting versions. And that was really touted as changing the game. It was being presented as a complete alteration of the way that the mechanism that opiates worked, and in particular, the risk of addiction being dramatically decreased with that change. You know, in my experience, working with doctors turned out to be absolutely not the case and was pretty obvious from the start. You were familiar about the claims that Purdue had at that time or a couple of years before that. In fact, they paid 634 
million in fines and pled guilty to misbranding that drug as non-addictive. I found that really shocking. Do you think companies like Purdue that they they knew that these drugs were addictive? Do you know, I guess the best way I can answer that question is to just go back to how I was feeling at that particular, what we called at the time, drug dinner. Um, and I had gone into it feeling fairly naive, and I left it feeling completely different. I left it feeling upset. And uh, so if I think carefully about that, it's, I, I recognize that because even at that time, and we're talking very early 2000s, having been working with doctors alongside doctors for well, close to 15 years by that point, and uh, having a physician spouse and being in, essentially our home was a medical clinic of our own, I was seeing that this was impossible, that these drugs were a big problem, that my wife, in, as an example, was having to deal with addiction problems all the time. There wasn't a, a day went by in my practice when I was seeing a pain patient who hadn't been sent to a, quote, pain clinic and didn't come back with a whole bunch of very addictive substances and wouldn't promptly get into all kinds of difficult cycles. It would affect my ability to work with a client to the point that over the years I, I stopped accepting clients who were receiving these kind of treatments because unless they dealt with the pain, the, the addiction component, I wasn't going to get anywhere with them. I, I was just circling the sink, you know. So, um, so yeah, that, that um, simple little event was an eye-opener for me that changed my course. Uh, in terms of me becoming aware that there was something going on here, that there was, that this, I couldn't trust these, this information necessarily. I needed to be more uh, critical and I needed to be more critical about where I was going to talk and what kind of talks I was going to attend. So after that event in 2003, you were asked to go to another healthcare conference. And you told me that once you got there, you realized that the whole thing was paid by Pfizer. Can you tell me what they were paying for and why? Yeah, yeah. And even how we got there is is relevant to that because we weren't invited by Pfizer. Um, and that was the first fascinating element of it. By this point, uh, we're, we're talking later in uh, closer to 2007, 2008. I am, uh, I'm now in a family health team. So I've transitioned out of private practice into more of a public health setting where I'm working in this team environment. We've got a, a wonderful team that I, I worked with and uh, a director who was overseeing us all. And we received the invitation from our executive director who said, hey, I've got this opportunity for all of us to attend an entire day of workshops on mental health and, and associated topics. And we're invited, not just the doctors, all of the mental health staff, all the counselors, the marriage and family counselors and so on are all invited. And we just, we were all delighted to hear that we would be invited to this event, this educational conference. So it was coming from our executive director who had received word from somebody in the ministry of health. So we're talking high level. At any rate, we, we arrive at the hotel and walk in and I swear we hadn't even got, they were opening the doors for us. A phalanx of attractive young men and women, all dressed in very 
stylish business attire. The men were all in natty suits and the women were all in, well, for the time, very natty suits. <laughs> and uh, they were opening the door, literally ushering us into and, and, and handing us these glistening packages with shiny folders and binders and pens and you name it. We had everything we needed for the day and more. And uh, they they got they got our names, took our names, gave us all this stuff, and it was like swag. And uh, holy cow, <laughs> I have just walked into the biggest drug day of my life. Um, and uh, the things carried on. So, what was the money spent on? What were what was I seeing? I was seeing us all attended to hand and foot, almost like servants. When we went into our sessions. Each room was arranged very neatly with a speaker's podium at the front, and at the back of the room was a table upon which was laid a a whole set of research uh, articles, all on the particular drug that applied to the talk. And what we hadn't, what I hadn't realized was that each talk was organized around a particular drug that Pfizer made. So each of the seminars, so the ones I was attending were on mental health, and each talk, for example, treatment depre- treatment resistant depression, was had all these articles on the use of, of Pfizer's a flagship drug uh, for treatment for depression, arranged at the back. The drug our drug rep was sitting at the back of the room, and at the front was a speaker who was hired by Pfizer and paid by Pfizer to come and do this this the talk. The uh, talk was about the. Uh, treatment of depression, for example. But towards the end, the uh, speaker discussed specific drugs, primarily those made by Pfizer, as gold standard treatments and such. And the interesting, what really perked me was that the drug rep at the back started fielding questions and even asked questions of his own. And then at the very end, we had a talk by a fellow on uh, treatment of smoking and smoking cessation. And ironically, he talked about the cigarette companies and the kind of marketing techniques that they use to get people addicted and to influence the sale of cigarettes. And it was really then, at the end of the day, I'm sitting and watching this guy talking about how the industry, the tobacco industry, had manipulated people into smoking and continuing to smoke. And it struck me that I was attending an event that was not at all dissimilar. Because the big tobacco companies years ago, they, they knew cigarettes were addictive. They would do the same thing. They would go to med- they, they They gave docs, well, for years, they actually provided them with cigarettes. Doctors used to prescribe smoking <laughs> way back in the day. Uh, and that wasn't just something that they thought of themselves. So yeah, on the way back uh, from the conference, I discussed it with my colleagues and said, yeah, I really feel an honey. I think my impression was that this uh, this particular event was seizing an opportunity. We had these new teams that were being form- formed all across the area. And uh, suddenly there was a whole host of new health professionals that hadn't been exposed to the marketing efforts of these companies. And now it looked like we were ripe for the picking. And as I observed my colleagues, I could see that they were completely naive to this stuff. They had no idea what was going on. They were just lapping it up. They'd never been treated so well. And to be able to attend, I don't know about you, Greg, but uh, in terms of attending a conference and having no pay, no nothing to pay for, 
It's all free. It was, it was like a dream come true. But I started to talk to them, explain that were the reasons why I was concerned about what the implications of this for, for what we were doing in our teams. And by the end of the drive, when we got back, everybody was in agreement. I wrote a letter to the local health network to complain that this had happened, thought it through. I actually got a response back. Yeah, I agree. We don't. We felt uneasy too, and we're not going to do it again. I thought, wow, that was easy. <laughs> you know, that was great. Flash forward a year, same thing. Executive director comes out. We've been invited to an event, different area, but the same company, same event is being held. That's when I decided I needed to do something. <laughs> you spoke up. I spoke up. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I essentially, I just, I just sat down and I thought, you know, what could I do? Uh, but on this occasion, I, I really felt a call. I felt that I had to do something. I, I was really concerned that something had happened in the first place that shouldn't have happened. There was an abuse happening that, that one company should be able to co-opt an entire educational day, um, that this was just wrong. And so, I thought, okay, I'll, uh, what I'll do is I'll hand out a letter during the lunchtime. I'll hand out a little piece of paper. And I did my research. I, I did it on one. It was a one-pager. And it basically, in a nutshell, said, we shouldn't be taking free lunches from pharmaceutical companies, that there's plenty of evidence. And I cited a few references to the fact that when doctors do this, it changes their prescription practices and it doesn't change them in positive ways, that it has a negative impact on their judgment and on the appropriateness of their prescriptions. And that's it. It was a very simple one page. And I said, if you agree, please note your name and shit hit the fan. I was standing at the side of the room with my satchel and I had all these little four letters inside of it and I'm waiting for everybody to sit down and get their lunch and my heart is going at like 140, 150. I am just, and I'm sweating. I thought, oh, I had not anticipated my nerves stepping in. Then the head drug rep for our area, who I knew from the lunches I had attended in, in over the years, he walked up to me, stand beside me, nudged me and said, hello, Dr. Shepard. I'm so glad that you could make the event. The guy had somehow figured out I was there and, and knew enough to find me and, and introduce himself to me. And I'm standing there making small talk with this guy, realizing I'm about to poop on his party. Um, start going around the room. And as I went around the room, things got quieter and quieter and quieter. Uh, at one point, I, I came to a table full of university profs uh, and doctors uh, who were researchers at a, at a prominent university, and they were livid. I, they were fuming. I could see steam coming out their ears. They were angry at you. The one literally sat back in his chair. He said, well, I can't repeat. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, to the sense of you are embarrassing everybody. You are spoiling this event. And this is totally inappropriate. If it wasn't for these kind of events, we wouldn't have educational sessions. I was feeling pretty sweaty by now and pretty humbled. I went back to my chair. Uh, by now, I was sitting alone at a table. Three drug reps, three young guys, 
big strapping guys came and sat down around me. Didn't say hello, just sat down beside me, around me. I think they thought I was about to stand up and take off all my clothes or something. You know, (laughs) I can only assume that they, you know, or that I was going to, I don't know, let off a stink bomb or whatever, but they did, they were clearly watch. And for the rest of the afternoon, I was followed by these guys. Um, I had a number of uh, executive directors come up and, and, and chew me out for having set such a bad example and, and, and showing such ingratitude to Pfizer. And uh, I left under, under a cloud, I have to say. I was, I was feeling horrible. And to make matters worse, out of over 100 people in the room, probably 150 people in the room, I got two of my manuscripts returned to me with signatures saying that they agreed with what I was saying. Out of 150 people, only two people responded with support. And they were young, relatively inexperienced um, pharmacy students. By the time I got back, I had an email on my computer from one of those people saying, please throw out, disregard my signature. I have been talking to my executive director and I want to withdraw any support for Wow. Uh, what you are speaking of. And I realized that I was all alone. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's, and then of course, things went from bad to worse as far as my clinic. Um, yeah. <laughs> what happened? Well, uh, I was, I guess you could say hauled over the carpet. Um, there were quite a few steps to it. Um, quite a few individuals involved, but um, we had a, uh, a, a health minister uh, high up in the health ministry uh, wrote a, a letter to our executive director and hospital expressing their dismay at, at what I had done and at the damage to their relationship with a proud corporate sponsor of the event. And uh, that the ministry was working alongside of. I had, uh, we had an affiliated research group in our clinic that were do- was doing community research, and they uh, expressed fury over the prospect of losing funding from Pfizer because Pfizer was, had provided them with grant. Wait a minute. So th- Pfizer was, was funding what? Pfizer was uh, sponsoring uh, a small, some research programs in the community. They were funding research in the community, and the money was coming out of Pfizer, so wouldn't it be kind of slanted towards their medications? Um, well, that certainly would be some people's view on the situation. Um, but uh, again, we're talking relatively naive, good, uh, well-meaning people who are getting money given to them. Um, a lot of people don't realize that this is an, another of the strategies that are used by not just drug companies, by any corporation, but drug companies in particular target um, charities uh, that are, have a mental health focus. And also they target charities like, oh, the Anxiety Foundation or what have you. I could I, I just, they, they target groups that um, don't necessarily push a drug agenda. Um, because they realize that that'll dampen any criticism, uh, and for this exact reason, right? What I understand is that uh, Purdue, what they did is they targeted uh, pain specialists and pain foundations, 
and filter money through them and got them to talk about and promote OxyContin. So am I getting this right that Purdue wasn't the only company or still isn't the only company that, that have these tactics? They, they all use these tactics to the best of my knowledge. Um, they all use it. This is good marketing. Um, you know, if we take it aside from the fact that it's medication and that we're all, we all would like to have our doctors uh, prescribed to us in an unbiased way. I mean, but the fact is that they're companies and they're corporations and they're, they've got a bottom line and they're trying to sell something. And this is just really smart corporate practice. You, you, you try to, uh, you need to influence information in a positive way. We have a lot of catchy words for it now in terms of they're influencers. I guess you could say in the modern terminology, they're, they were just being influencers and they still are. They behave like influencers and uh, with the same caveats and problems that go with that. So, so yeah, I, I had this feedback happening. Um, well, the hospital board blew up and my wife who was on the board being a, a, a local doctor and she was serving on the board at the time had to sit and listen to the board express their dismay and anguish towards me. Her husband, it was very embarrassing to her, shall we say. Um, she didn't come home too happy, didn't, didn't help our relationship for a couple of days while she processed the fact that uh, suddenly, as opposed to the usual praise and admiration and thanks that she received from the community, she was feeling that I had become this sort of black spot you know, um, in, in her community, never mind mine. Um, and then the ED, my executive director, my boss, came down on me and said, look, this, was, this is a catastrophe. You know, I'm getting pressure from everywhere. And I was told to write a letter explicitly apologizing to the minister and to the regional leader of Pfizer uh, for having offended them and that my views were not shared by my clinic or my hospital. So uh, and that's when I decided to fall on my sword and I uh, I wasn't going to do that so I resigned. How did you feel about all this at the time? Um you know I when I really knew I was in trouble uh was when I walked out of a conference in question um having you know distributed my letter and and the day had just gone so sour and I had felt like a well in old world terms like a leper I, I felt like a castaway and as I approached the car uh, my phone rang and I answered and it was my son a uh, teenage son who knew I was going to do this and he was wanting to know how it went and and I so I, I said uh, I said well I, I think I'm going to be arrested just joking and he flipped he flipped out and that's when I realized that I, I was in over my head when even my own son was taking it seriously and thought that, that I was somehow in danger or something, you know, and I was just joking about it. And I didn't feel that way at all, but I did know that something was wrong. And uh, so, yeah, I was, I, I, I had been, I had joined a team that I loved working for. I was in an environment that was my ideal job. Uh, but fortunately I was, I was spread out around the county. I had many different consulting jobs that I did. I had my private practice. I I wasn't destitute. I was able to fall back on my other work. But it I, I had to step out of the part of my work I enjoyed the most 
um, and leave colleagues who I had just begun to uh, just begun to develop some really great relations with. So, so it was tough uh, for sure. You mentioned before you presented all this information that you did your homework. You looked at research. I mean, what you presented at that conference were facts. How did you feel about those facts after all this happened? Uh, did you look at it and go, well, maybe I disagree now? Or did you look at it and go, damn, I was right. Like, I, I, this, was, this was the right information to be presenting to them. Do you know, initially, um, my nature uh, and probably what got me into psychology was that I was always more internal and, and analyzed myself a lot, even as a kid. And so I, I can't say I was easy on myself at the start. I was more prone to be looking at the other side of the coin and thinking, have I overreacted to this whole thing? I seem to be the lone wolf out here. Um, and, and honestly, as part of my work, cognitive therapy, to give an example, we ask people to do surveys and to, to test the waters. If you have some thoughts and you're not sure you're accurate with them, if you think you're misconstruing the world, ask some people. Uh, give an example, tell a story and ask people what they think and get some, get some feedback. And here I was in a situation where the feedback was universally negative for probably the first time in my life. It wasn't just my imagination. (laughs) I was universally getting put down, told that I'd made a mistake, that I'd been, etc. But over time, over the course of the next year, things started happening. For example, the, the director at the, at the team that I left contacted me to say she'd been thinking it over and she was starting to make some changes at the clinic. And over the course of the next year, I learned that they stopped accepting free samples from the pharmaceutical companies. They stopped allowing free seminars, which were being held in the clinic at lunch so the doctors wouldn't be inconvenienced. They started to limit the drug detail person's access to physicians in the clinic. Um, The changes affected the board of directors. Uh, Some prominent members left the board in the ensuing months. And uh, the final change was brought about because uh, word news hit the stands that Pfizer had had this huge lawsuit. um, What year was this? This must have been in the order of 2008. It was when, uh, when the news hit that Pfizer had been uh, involved in all these practices that I was upset about, essentially. So here I was, uh, the board had had taken me to task, and then they're reading in their local newspaper. It was national oh, news. Yeah. It was a huge settlement. And it was for exactly the thing that I was protesting at this seminar, at this day conference that I was at. And that just really turned the tide, it seems, that people were willing to come out from the dark and say, I actually was feeling uncomfortable. I discovered that quite a few people were uneasy with what was happening. And uh, I, I did actually get my job back. Um, you got your job back? I got my job back, yeah. Did they apologize for how they went about it? Do you know, I think it was enough said that they asked me to come back and were really, really nice about it. <laughs> I wasn't the kind to say, oh, you guys got to apologize or something. I was just really happy to get another chance to work at a place that I really uh, enjoyed working at and with people I enjoyed working with. And everybody who approached me 
were feeling, uh, they felt badly about what had happened. And they expressed it in many different ways, but, but I got the message that people supported me or I wouldn't have gone back. And in particular, my, the, the director who had done a complete about face and, uh, and we had some, a real heart to heart. And, um, and I have to admit that, uh, she was, I did feel for her. She had been blindsided. You know, I had, I had let her know the year before that, you know, this all blew up, that I was uneasy with these conferences. But on the occasion of this conference, once I got the news that she was going to plow ahead, regardless of what I did, I decided to go ahead knowing that, that she didn't approve of it. So, but she, she had come full circle. And from that time, we worked on really looking at the ethics in the clinic and drawing up policies and coming up with some standards that uh, that are still in place. I think, yeah, a lot of good came out of it. A lot of a lot of good came out of it. And I, I've learned that you know, if you're going through something um, powerful that uh, is that really shifts your thinking, you're probably not alone. And I don't think it's a coincidence that across the nation clinics started to engage in this kind of activity where they started changing policies and looking at their standards more closely and doctors have over the years started to be more considerate and and think more about accepting gifts from companies and and rules are are in place in a lot of jurisdictions now that control this kind of thing it's 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 advanced a bit you know, it's it's not perfect, but there have been positive changes. Um, we're never the only one. If we're really tapping into something, a valid concern, you can always be sure that there's somebody else out there and, and probably a lot of people out there. What was in the news at the time, I believe, was about a, um, a settlement or um, in any case, Pfizer, in around that time, paid out $2.3 billion, what I'm reading here. Yes. Now, what that was for, and you're a psychologist, so I'm going to ask you a question as a psychologist here. <laughs> so this was concerning off-label marketing and kickbacks to physicians that included cash, travel, entertainment, as well as sham consulting and illegal marketing. As a psychologist, how would you explain the phenomena, and it's got to be more than just naivete, the phenomena of the physicians accepting and knowing that this is coming from a drug rep, this is coming from a pharmaceutical company. You know, it's not, it's not complicated how it works. First, you need to have some very attractive people. And I, you know, it does seem to be a low common denominator, but if you're going to try to influence doctors, it, it's not all about brains. You need to have attractive people. They must exude status, so they need to be dressed well. They need to drive spanky cars. Uh, you need to fawn over your customer. You need to make them feel special. Um, you need to do favors further so they feel indebted to you. They feel indebted. Indebted. And that's a, that's a social phenomenon that we're all familiar with. When somebody gives you something, and it's you know, social psychology, it's a sore point in my profession that probably the most success we've had, the most impact we've had is of all our research and study over the last century is on marketing. <laughs> and all these companies are doing is what we came up with in terms of our study of the mind and in particular of 
of attitude change research in particular, which is in the domain of social psychology. And these are all features of social psychology in terms of, of changing people's minds. And you can change people's minds about anything if you know how. So, yeah, throw in some free products, complimentary research, which I'll feel obligated to look at. And I'm a busy guy, so I'm not going to look for other research because this is research. Research is research. I've gone to medical school. I accept research as the God's truth, generally. And uh, also donating to the community and, and <laughs> agencies and various things. You also need to be expert at deflecting critical points of view. And the sales, the drug representative, everyone in a f- company, are, they're very expert at that and they're trained to deflect criticism. You're dealing with a health professional who is very busy and they really appreciate having someone save them time, work, and in the end, money. Uh, so so it's, um, it's very effective. It's very easy to do. It just costs a lot. But, you know, these companies are paying uh, a significant more, they pay more into the marketing than they do the research for the drug. Last year, Pfizer spent $2.8 billion in advertising. Um, I would say that's probably a gross underestimate. No kidding. How much will they spend on, on research and clinical trials compared to that? I think uh, if I would, um, am correct, I, Janssen, in, the, in a recent study, they spent... Um, 12 billion on research and development and 18 billion on marketing. It's generally in a magnitude of two to one to three to one in favor of marketing. So a lot more money going into the market. A lot more money. A lot of money going into marketing. Um, They can evade accountability on that front by because marketing is hard to define. And when you're talking about education, um, that doesn't necessarily count as marketing. When you're helping doctors understand how to use your medication ostensibly, when you're teaching them of how to discern when to use it and when you're, et cetera, and when you're um, designing studies that are trying to promote your drug, when you're trying to address an angle of criticism or such, that's considered research. And yet it's really marketing research a lot of the time. Um, and a lot of it is marketing. So. So it's, you know, it's going into a lot of different pockets and being mis, mis, uh, defined in incorrect ways a lot of the time. But realistically, it's just a lot of money. Aside from the psychology that you're talking about it and feeling indebted, I mean, I'm going to give physicians a lot of credit because I work with physicians and I think very, very highly of them. But you mentioned something that really stuck out in our conversation recently. You said that these companies often launder data about clinical trials, that data being presented to the physicians, and it's, what, fudged? Or how would you explain that? Do you know, it's, um, that's a powerful word. Right? It is, yes. Laundered, we use that term in terms of, you know, if you launder money, you know, we right. all know. Right, that's that, how I kind of interpret it. We all know that that's a nasty thing to do. But in the, in the research world, um, it's important to to remind everyone or maybe even educate everybody to the fact that data is open to interpretation. And when we're uh, conducting research, there is a phase where data is gathered and it's there's sort of a pre-analysis stage where we look at the data and decide how to analyze it. 
And there's, there's just a lot of room for important decisions to be made that may not be the best decisions. And sometimes those are guided by our, our needs and wants instead of by what's right. So an example in the case of Pfizer, where it was really questionable, was that um, with Celebrex, for example, they had done a study, very large clinical trial, and uh, they had data extending out six, uh, six months, I believe it was, from the initial starting to take the medication to six months out. And uh, as they were working through the data and writing up the, doing the analyses and writing up the study, they recognized, at least we understand it this way, that given they had six months data, that at the six month point, some people were dying, a significant number in research terms. Now, you know, day to day, the average person would say, well, you know, you've 100 or so people die. We're talking tens of thousands of people in these studies. Um, but it was a significant number um, had died of heart complications, a stroke, heart attack. And uh, so when they looked at the data, they realized that if they took the three-month window, those effects weren't evident. So when they published the study, it was a three-month study, not a six-month study. Now, there's other reasons why they may have chosen that three-month cutoff that they uh, I think probably tried to justify in hindsight, but that's probably what's meant <laughs> in terms of massaging data. We can make things go one way or another by choosing start and end points that suit us by picking, well, there's a lot of other ways to do it that, that companies use and that researchers use. And this isn't just pharmaceuticals. This is all research. Um, but let's, you know, to use uh, drug studies as an example, we can also look at who is in the study. And so one way to control the outcome of a study, let's take an area of mental health depression. We're looking at an antidepressant. Well, manufacturers know for a fact that depression is prone to relapse. Very common. And so you will find very few, there have been thousands of studies of antidepressant medication, comparing them to one another, comparing them to placebo, but you will rarely find a medication study that extends more than 12 or 16 weeks. Maybe I'm wrong, but reading about all this uh, recently, it looks like these drugs are approved by the FDA or Health mm -hmm. Canada. And then the research and clinical trials continue after it's been approved and on the market. Explain why that happens. Are you referring to, well, Celebrex in yes. particular? or in, in the case of Celebrex, well, Pfizer had two different drugs, slightly different chemically and such. One was with, for also for pain. One was withdrawn permanently and wasn't returned to the market. Was that Bextra? Yes, Bextra. Whereas the Celebrex, they, they paused, but they didn't remove it. Um, and uh, what they did was they performed another study. And it was a four-year trial on many, many people where they were able to demonstrate. And <laughs> speaking of data and how we work with data, they very wisely chose not to compare the drug effect to a placebo control group. They compared it to other normal, regular anti-inflammatories. So we know that those drugs also have some of the negative effects that went with Celebrex, where they can have cardiac 
complications in terms of increased risk of heart attack and stroke and increased risk of stomach problems. Um, and they all have hepatotoxicity in terms of they have effects on the liver. All of these drugs, if you take them in higher doses or if you have a history of stomach issues or heart problems, um, you shouldn't take the drug. So they do a follow-up four years and they make sure that those people aren't, <laughs> aren't in there. But more importantly, they, uh, they're comparing apples to apples. So they were able to demonstrate that in comparison to other drugs that are out there and that people are using all the time, there was no significant difference. And if anything, Celebrex was maybe even a little better. So we can still get it. And a lot of people get a lot of benefit out of it. You know, it's important. These medications, most medications that companies come up with, they do have beneficial effects. And, but often it's with a lot of caveats. You know, in the case of Celebrex, you need to be taking it by your doctor's prescription and at a very modest dose. And you shouldn't take it any longer than you have to take it. So, you know, the FDA and agencies trying to monitor these things, they, they're limited in what they can do and what their powers are. And also by sort of the whole critical process, because there are arguments that can be made on both sides. And um, Pfizer isn't a company to back down. I agree that these drugs, even including the, you know, the, the opiates, Oxycontin and other painkillers, mm-hmm. I mean, there was so much value. There is so much value in these medications. And I, I don't want to come across like I'm, I'm bashing the drugs or bashing big pharma. But mm-hmm. the question that comes to mind is that, especially with Celebrex and Pfizer, why wouldn't Pfizer know about the cardiovascular problems before they put it in the market? You know, I'm not sure we could ever answer that question. Um, you know, I would just be speculating. And uh, But um, you've got to follow the money trail. And the decisions about why they pursue one thing or another have a lot to do with where they think they'll get the best return on their investment. An email you sent to me that I, I thought was very interesting. I'd like to know more about what you meant in here. But you said some things can diminish the power that we gain over our mind and body through self-study, validated treatment approaches, the support of others, including experienced therapists, if necessary. Can you expand on that and tell me more about your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, well, I guess I, I, I can speak from experience on that in terms of having walked the walk and been in um, you know, the best term I could use was the period of my life when my mind was on fire, uh, when, uh, uh and I was not well, uh, I was very, uh, in medical terms, I would have been considered severely ill and I was struggling to cope and to, uh, maintain my role as a husband, as a dad for four beautiful children. Um, to maintain my role as a professional who had to sit down in therapy sessions with people. Well, inside, I was consumed uh, and could not turn it off. And uh, you can probably guess that I wasn't a big fan of taking drugs. And that's not really just around the research. I just was that kind of guy and still am. I just had a preference to DIY it. And uh, I developed that as a young guy. I swore off all substances when I was a teen. 
I couldn't be a monk, but I thought, well, I could do some of the things that monks do. So I've never taken caffeine, chocolate, alcohol, any of that stuff since I was 17 years old. So kind of fanatical, you could say, but but a real do-it-yourself sort of guy. And anyone who knows me knows that aspect of me. I'm a real do-it-yourselfer. So when I was in this really bad shape, I had to come up with solutions and I had to look into my own work for those solutions. I had to look into psychology for those solutions. I had to look deep into myself for them. And there were really practical things. I had to deal with a mind and a body. Uh, And I used uh, lifestyle. I used routine. I used very basic thought control methods, thought stopping. For, for example, which is one of the crudest cognitive techniques. Um, <laughs> but when you're in bad shape, you don't get fancy. You have you use really basic. The basic methods are the ones that will get you through. And you have to be ruthless and, and very specific with them and consistent with them. And it takes a lot of time. And again, drug studies don't understand that. Physicians often miss that fact if they haven't gone through it themselves, that it's a very long healing process. And that, and if I could get your listeners just to understand that a little bit more, that if we're really looking at change, I don't care if it's psilobicin or ketamine or if it's a SSRI or if it's Zen meditation, you know, if it only takes me five minutes, it's not going to play out in my life in a positive way you are going to have to work your ass off. If it's that bad, it's going to be that hard. And I say that to encourage people, not to discourage them, to say there is light at the end of the tunnel, but it's not going to be in sight. You're going to need to bridge your way across and take it a step at a time. And it's a huge exercise in patience, which is the last thing we've got when we're feeling really ill. But there is hope. And the most practical things you can do in the day are going to be the things that save your life. Things like eating three square meals across the day. So important. Things like getting out for a regular walk, preferably with somebody you care about that you can have a meaningful conversation with. Things like trying to drag yourself into whatever work it is you do, trying to do the best you can. Things like turning away those thoughts no matter how attractive they are, no matter how much they beckon you to get in and bathe in them and swim in them and get engrossed in them to refuse that, to learn how to distract yourself in healthy ways. And there's countless other practical day-to-day methods that we can do each and every day, and none of them require tomes of self-help manuals or complex molecular formulas to back them up. Um, And we've been doing this for as long as people have been around. And we're wired to rely on these methods and we can count on them. So that's really the (laughs) mind-body part of it It for me. It certainly is. I appreciate that. Yeah. And the, uh, the real joy I've seen with the new neuroscience is that we can see it happening now. And we no longer have to try to convince people that it's happening without seeing it. That we can see that when you do these things, 
it changes the way your brain works. It changes the flow of electricity, essentially. It changes the flow of information. And it changes it just as much or more than just about any physical technique or drug technique. I absolutely agree that in addition to the medication and all these things, lifestyle, routine, simple things that mom and dad would tell you, you know, make sure that you sleep well and you eat well and you look after yourself in a holistic way is so important. So I appreciate that. Really do. What would you recommend to the listeners? And I, I really didn't want the listeners to walk away with a certain amount of trepidation or fear of doctors and medications and big pharma, right? So in a general sense, whether it's a doctor or psychologist or chiropractor, no matter what the healthcare profession is, what do you think that we should be asking to learn more and to know more? I think the, the, the biggest lesson I've had really came from my wife and her practice as a doctor. Um, strangely enough, <laughs> and maybe not that surprisingly, because uh, she it really loves her work, like many, the majority of doctors, they just enjoy that, and it's very fulfilling. And what my wife has crafted over her career is an ability to show people how it works, so she doesn't hesitate. One thing that she uses the most is paper on her examining table. And she draws it out for her her patients and explains how the medication works or what the change that she's suggesting they make will do. She explains why the problem is there in the first place and she shows them what's going on. And over and over again, I hear how people respond so positively to that when their eyes open up and say, nobody's ever explained it to me before. So helpful. The whole conversation was helpful and and I I really, really appreciate your time. So uh, again, thank you for being here and and sharing your experience with us. It's it's been fascinating and informative. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Greg. It's it's really been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Well best of luck with your private practice, Robert. Thanks again. Thank you. Rob, you could probably see that doing all this research, I had a million questions for him. <laughs> and some of them I, I didn't even get. To. Oh, I know. And I and uh, I, I still have questions. But boy, yeah, is this a lot like Painkiller? It, it's perfect timing because this week, the show Painkiller, it's a series. I think there's ep- eight episodes of it. But it talks primarily about, it's a bit fictionalized, but it's it's based on a, on a book about the Sackler family. Purdue Pharma was a family-run corporation and um, a little nefarious on how they went about selling opiates. I I couldn't believe a lot of the parallels uh, with painkiller and what Dr. Robert Shepard had gone through. You and I went through it, uh, whether you realize it or not, Greg, but back in the day when we were working radio, we used to have record reps come in from the different record companies, uh, Warner Brothers, Sony, Columbia, Capitol... And that is an excellent parallel. Do you remember? Oh, here's some tickets to Elton John's latest concert. Or yes. here's tickets to Tears for Fears. Or here, let me give you the latest uh, Mr. Mr. album. Uh, now you're I'm, dating us now. I'm, I, I was dating myself. I'm going back to the early 80s. But I have probably one of the best record collections in the world to this date. 
And I'm going to, I'll let you know that only 2% of my record collection, I actually paid for The rest were gifts from record companies. And what happened there, Greg, is I felt indebted mm-hmm, just to like that record company. So therefore, I would have some pull on getting that record played at the radio station because the record company was really nice to me. Same thing with the pharmaceutical companies. That, like I said before, an, an excellent parallel. I didn't even think about the whole idea that we were given perks as radio announcers and invited to, you know, fancy dinners and much the same kind of thing. But when when I look back at my behavior, like I asked Robert about this phenomena, <laughs> you just kind of threw it in my face that. But it's a it is a phenomena indebtedness. Yeah. And, and and we experienced that. I, I never really thought of it until until you mentioned it. But I did feel kind of like, um, you know, uh, indebted, but in a way that this theater was so nice uh, enough to give me tickets to see this concert. I'll mention the concert. I'll mention the venue. Exactly. Because that's just the yes. way business is. But the thing is, is that I, I guess the same thing is happening with doctors but as I talked to another doctor recently, he felt that these uh, big pharma companies took advantage of doctors. So, like, do you think that we were taken advantage of? In radio, it's a, it's a totally different story because there's the drug story, then there's the record company story. Two totally different stories. I think there's more harm being done with the pharmaceutical companies than there was harm with us uh you know, taking, if you will, bribes from record companies in order to play their records. That's my take on it anyway. No, that's a good point. And um, I mean, it may kind of relate to years ago. If you remember, you know, the payola scandal oh, of the payola. 60s when it, when it comes to radio, you know, then like that was big, big money. But it's a, it's a good point that you made, Rob, is that we weren't prescribing medication. We weren't indebted to, to doing things like that, though the doctors and apparently you know, this still goes on, where they feel indebted to, um, you know, to push a, a drug mm-hmm. that is, uh, is is marketed to them. But another thing, too, do you notice that um, he talked a lot about uh, research? He talked a lot about that he felt that the research that he was given and his wife was given, uh, like, was skewed. It, it was skewed towards, um, much like when I read in the book, you know, they, they, they probably mentioned it in the in the Netflix thing. Is that Purdue Pharma, for example, said that, oh, hey, only 1% of the people that use our drug become addicted. And it's like the tobacco companies yep. years ago, like I brought up, right? Oh, yeah. And, but it's, it's, what's really nefarious, I think, is the research that they present to the doctors. They know the doctors don't have a lot of time to, to research uh, the product. We'll do that for you. Here's recent data. Here's a recent study. And the doctors accepted that as fact. And I think that's the most nefarious part of it is that the research is what he said was kind of laundered. Well, here's another thing that I, it blew me away when I heard, and I can't quote the numbers. I didn't write them down after hearing uh, the good doctor talk about it, but uh, there was more money spent on marketing these pharmaceuticals, these drugs, than there was in money spent in research and development of these pharmaceuticals. More money spent on marketing. Pretty shocking. That bl- that blew me away. I know. I know. And and the, the you know the figures that he was talking about amazed me. You know that they spend more money on 
on pushing the drugs and trying to get the doctors to prescribe them than actually, you know, doing some serious research and clinical trials to see if these uh, drugs are, are safe. But, you know, all in all, and I, I don't want to go on and on about, about the episode, but also what hit me is that I often have talked about this in, in my field of addiction is that opiates mm-hmm. are nothing new. And the whole idea that, oh, here's a new drug, it's not addictive, has been going on for years because uh, in the wars, like you, uh, your, your father was in the, in, in the war. Uh, years ago in war, they had a medication regarding pain, right? And that's what they're there for, right? The, the, uh, um, the poppy plant, the, the opium has been used for good. But there is a history of synthesized opiates that are claimed to be safe. And that goes back to way before, not, not the wars that, you know, your father was in, but way, 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 way back uh, where they used morphine. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and they, they said, well, no, this is safe. You know, the, these guys on, in, in the uh, uh, battles uh, have severe pain. Uh, we have to amputate, things like that. They used uh, morphine, and that was considered to be safe. Then later on, they brought in heroin, Bear, yeah. which, like the aspirin company, had heroin to replace morphine because we, uh-oh, morphine's addictive. And later on, it's, uh-oh, heroin's addictive. And this is what just happened not too long ago with OxyContin. Well, let's talk about the uh, the addictive qualities of uh, painkillers. As you know, I had uh, hip surgery, had my right hip replaced about uh, just over two years ago. And I was on a product called Hydromorphin, which is a painkiller. And I think the biggest worry my uh, surgeon had was that I would get addicted. So I, I forget exactly how many weeks I was on the Hydromorphin, but he weeded me off. And then we went to some less quality drugs, if you will, but just to get me off the heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. needed that to recover from my hip surgery. That's the reality of this, right? Yeah. You know, like they, they talk about in the show about pain and pleasure, right? Uh, there's a reason that uh, he prescribed hydromorphone for you because of your pain, but because you and I are, are uh, recovering addicts, there's we kind of gravitate towards the pleasure part of these medications. And, I mean, really anybody can, not just recovering addicts, but anybody that can have, uh, you know, um, a very minor surgery, more minor than yours, not not to play it down. No, but exactly. A minor surgery mm-hmm. where they're given Tylenol threes with codeine or Percocets, and that's their introduction into this, and they continue on because they become physically addicted to it. I have a son-in-law. I've shared this story with you. I have a son-in-law, and I know he won't mind me talking about it, but um, uh, we went through a bout uh, with he being addicted to painkillers. So that's why this. Uh, show today with uh, Dr. Shepard meant a lot to me because it's out there. Yeah. And it, it continues to happen. Yeah. It continues to happen now. Uh, and I saw this coming uh, when I was working at uh, the hospitals when they finally caught on to Purdue and, and these companies and they, they started to take Oxycontin off, off the market. I knew right away, knowing the behavior of addicts and my personal experience, but more primarily my experience in um, education and experience working in addiction, that they're going to find another way and another opiate. And sure enough, they did. And 
my worst fears came true when heroin made a big comeback, and then now fentanyl. It's we we can't blame one family corporation. We can't blame one pharmaceutical company. But this is long, long history. And as yep. you know, Robert was saying, you know, this is just part and parcel for many years on how they market drugs to the public. A lot of parallels between uh, your interview today with the good doctor and uh, this show on Netflix. Yes. And uh, as I mentioned, and I'll put the uh, the link for the book in the episode description along with other links that you, you guys can take a look at. But the uh, the book to read, really, uh, in the basis of, of the show is by Barry Meyer called Painkiller. Uh, really encourage you guys to read that book and check out the other links in the description. You also encourage people to become Patreon members. Yes. How do you do that? Well, it is a matter of going to a link that is in the episode description and also on social media, but the link is patreon.com backslash matters, and uh, the listener can go to that website and sign up, and for a couple bucks a month, they'll get early access to our episodes and a transcript. And uh, yeah, we've, we've had quite a few sign up already, and we appreciate their support. Every little bit helps, as they say in the Patreon world. Every little bit helps, and we, we appreciate the help that you guys have provided us so far. Well, Mind Body Matters is a great media podcast and produced by Reefer Communications. We'll be back soon with another episode. And in the meantime, be kind to yourself. And most importantly, be well. Thanks for listening. And if there's a topic that you'd like to hear about, drop us a line at mb-matters.com. Be sure to like and follow us on all our socials. And if you like what you hear, hit subscribe or follow and share with your friends.